Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to a special five-part podcast series, Integrity Matters, Exploring the National Defense Authorization Act, sponsored by K2 Integrity. This week, I visit with Chip Ponce, who is the global co-head of the K2 Integrity Financial Crimes Risk Management Practice and a member of K2 Integrity's board. He co-founded the Financial Integrity Network in 2014, which merged with K2 Intelligence in 2019. The combined firm announced its new name, K2 Integrity, in November 2020. From 2002 to 2013, Chip served as the inaugural director of the Office of Strategic Policy for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes and a senior advisor at the U.S. Department of Treasury. Prior to K2 Integrity, Chip also served as HSBC's Interim Head of Financial Crimes Compliance for Mexico and the Latin American region, assisting in the development and implementation of an enterprise-wide financial crimes compliance program adherent to global standards. I'm also joined by Gail Fuller. Gail is a Managing Director at K2 Integrity. She leads the teams, providing advisory support to a wide variety of clients, including foreign governments, financial institutions, and fintech firms, helping them navigate the complex challenges relating to compliance with anti-money laundering, combating the financing of terrorism regulations, U.S. and international sanctions, and bribery and anti-corruption laws. Gail spent nearly eight years with the U.S. federal government focused on combating illicit finance. Over this five-part series, we will break down the changes to the Bank Secrecy Act and changes in enforcement to authority to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, which are found in the recently passed National Defense Authorization Act. Topics include breaking down the big picture, company formation reform, new opportunities under this new law, coming changes to corporate governance under the NDAA, and taking the long view of the new law. This is one of the most significant new laws around banks, bank secrecy in nearly 20 years. They will apply to financial institutions and a wide variety of others going forward. In this fifth and concluding episode, I am joined once again by Gail Fuller, and we take a look at the long view under the law. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for our fifth and final episode uh, in our exploration of the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, and the expansion of the Bank Secrecy Act. Today, I'm joined once again by Gail Fuller. Gail, first of all, uh, thank you again and welcome back. Thank you so much, Tom. Great to be here as always. Gail, uh, I have enjoyed each one of the episodes uh, that we have uh, put on this week, but looking into the future is probably my favorite topic. So I get to look uh, or at least ask you about your views on the long view. So what happens now and what immediate changes do you see either from the government perspective or more importantly, from the financial institution perspective that they need to, to try and implement? Thanks, Tom. So I think we've talked a little bit about during this series, you know, what a long tail there's going to be to the implementation of this law, because it's it's really a very ambitious one. Uh, but I think it's useful to take a moment to think about well, what changes on the day that it is finally signed into law, because I guess it's just a bill now. But um once it's signed into law, there are a couple of things that are immediate uh, that are important for financial institutions to be aware of. So we can kind of start with those. Um, you know, one of them is related to enforcement and penalties for um, 
illicit activity. So there's there are increased penalties for noncompliance that will come into force immediately uh, once this bill becomes law. And that means that under the new rules, repeat violations of the BSA will be subject to civil penalties that are twice the maximum for a first violation and three times the violator's profit resulting from the violation. So that's a that's a pretty stark difference and actually makes me think of things like the Anti-Terrorism Act, where you can go after treble damages, um, really starts putting AML violations on the same footing as sort of the CT violations, potentially. Sorry, I think the, the other one is related also to enforcement, and it's related to the repayment of profits and bonuses uh, from individuals convicted of BSA violations and actually barring those individuals who committed an egregious violation from serving on the board of a financial institution for up to 10 years. And this is this has been kind of a hot topic in a while, the personal liability, personal responsibility element of AML compliance. And so this is a big, big change from an enforcement perspective as well. And lastly, I think you already talked during one of your sessions with Chip a lot about the uh, whistleblower program that's being implemented, which is another one that's a pretty immediate and uh, critical change. Gail, in a prior episode, you alluded to the rulemaking process uh, that uh, uh, financial institutions will have to wait on from the Department of Treasury. I was wondering if you could just give a few words on what the rulemaking process is. So, for instance, will there be a, a proposed rule uh, made available for public comment or financial institution comment, and then those comments taken into account and a final rule listed uh, or issued, or will it be something different? So there are a lot of elements of this bill that are really teeing up potential future reforms and future rules. Um, there's kind of two ways to look at that. There's the glass half full version, which is that, you know, there's a great opportunity to sort of tackle thornier issues that they weren't able to um, fully address in this draft of the bill. And then there's the glass half empty version, which is these have been hard issues to tackle for a while and we're just kicking the can further down the road. Um, I, I prefer to take the glass half full version and say that, you know, they're at least by mandating reports and studies that will be drafted, um, in some cases made available for public comment and then delivered to Congress with recommendations. They're really creating what I think of as action forcing events for reviving the debate on some of these challenging issues. And, you know, a couple of those areas are related to deferred prosecution agreements. There's going to be a study on the effectiveness of deferred prosecution agreements and how well the Department of Justice has been coordinating with the Department of Treasury and also with federal and state level regulators when administering, changing, or terminating agreements like that. Um, And then I think I mentioned earlier, there's, you know, one that I think will be most exciting to financial institutions is the requirement in, in the bill for conducting a review of whether and how model validation really applies to AML-CFT, whether it really makes sense to have these uh, standards that were defined or created for things like liquidity risk management or credit risk management apply equally to the AML world. So the rulemaking process and sort of the long tail of this regulation is going to be related to kind of this series of reports and studies that are going to be done submitted to Congress and provide sort of an opportunity to revive the debate on some of these challenging issues. Gil, when I first began to study the Bank Secrecy Act, when it was uh, uh, proposed and as it moved forward in Congress this year, uh, I immediately saw uh, many sectors outside financial institutions that this either could, would, or should apply to. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, what what do you see as 
some sectors that might be impacted that perhaps were not so central uh, to the prior act? Yeah, thank you. That's a, it's a great question because there are some that are kind of out on the fringes of things. Um, so I think the most immediate impact in this area, and it's still not immediate, immediate, um, is that this bill is going to bring dealers and antiquities under the purview of the Bank Secrecy Act. This is really important because of the involvement of the antiquity sector in recent terrorist financing cases. I say it's not going to be immediate, immediate, because there's still going to be a year-long period during which regulations will be drafted and promulgated before they really, truly come under the purview of the BSA. Uh, but that's an important one. Um, I think in that area, it's just really the tip of the iceberg or just the start, though. Uh, the broader art market has been you know, gaining prominence in its abuse for illicit finance purposes, for sanctions evasion purposes. And so I think there's an opportunity to take that a lot broader than just dealers and antiquities. And there's a recognition of that in this bill. Um, we were just talking about some of the studies and reports that are going to be drafted that are mandated by the bill. And this is one of those areas. Uh, the Treasury Department will be conducting a study of how money laundering is occurring in the broader art market. And we'll be making a recommendation to Congress about whether increased regulation on the sector would prove helpful to law enforcement. And I think that's going to be a really important conversation. Um, there's also a separate kind of weirdly, it's it's in a Russia focused section of the bill, but um, it requires the Treasury Department to identify any additional regulations or any additional requirements uh, needed to combat money laundering. But some of the specific things that it talks about there are considering, you know, a new national register to track the ownership of real estate and new reporting and customer due diligence requirements for the real estate sector for law firms and for other types of what we call trust and corporate service providers, those that are setting up and administering companies on behalf of others, uh, legal persons and arrangements. So I think these are all positive steps at bringing some of those fringe industries um, into the under the umbrella of the BSA. So art, real estate, law, trust and company service providers. Um, these are all areas where the U.S. has honestly been lagging behind international standards and they've been topics of discussion for a while. So keeping that momentum of the conversation going and trying to bring those under the purview of supervision, I think will be important. Yeah, let me conclude with the following. What's your advice to entities, uh, financial institutions or others who are trying to make sense of what's to come with the NDAA and what it, their responsibility is? So I think that my, my advice would be you know, sort of twofold. Um, make sure that you're aware of those immediate changes uh, that we just talked about, but also kind of keep your eye on the long game. Um, we discussed a lot during this series, the creation of new working groups through the um, BSA advisory group, um, but also the creation of additional governance structures and sort of convening bodies to bring together different stakeholders to discuss the continued change. Um, it's clear that there's a huge focus in these reforms on improving information sharing and engagement between the public and private sectors. And it's also clear that there is, as I was saying, kind of a long tail to how this is going to be implemented. So this is signaling the start of a period of change that will have far reaching implications for years in this space. And it's important for financial institutions to keep that long game in mind and find ways to plug into the process and be part of the policy conversation as it continues and as they're shaping the future of what the BSA is going to look like. Gail, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted more information on any of the topics you've discussed today, where can they go? 
So I would uh, refer back to uh, Chip's references to Dolphin, the dedicated online financial integrity network. It's a great platform that we've created at K2 Integrity. Um, he is, has so much enthusiasm about it that I know that listeners have heard that in the previous iterations here, but I think it's a, it's a great resource where there's a lot of information about the NDAA and all kinds of other topics related to our space. Um, we can always, of course, also be found at k2integrity.com and on Twitter and LinkedIn. And I will just plug uh, another podcast this week in FCPA because every week we list all of the K2 Integrity upcoming webinars. So if you listen to that podcast and read the show notes, you'll see uh, what K2 has uh, for that next coming week. Uh, Gail, this has just been, frankly, a ton of fun. We've had a lot of information over this past week, and, and I hope we can have an ongoing dialogue about not only what the changes are, but really what they mean for financial institutions at public and private companies throughout the United States and the rest of the world. Thanks, Tom. It's been a real pleasure to participate. I appreciate it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Integrity Matters, exploring the National Defense Authorization Act. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow for another episode. Please check out the great resources provided by K2 Integrity, which are listed on the show notes, their website, and the new Dolphin site. This special five-part podcast series is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network, sponsored by K2 Integrity.